2 Corinthians 6 from verse 3. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardship and distress, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonour, bad report and good report, genuine yet regard as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence from God. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest. But we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so we were not harmed in any way by us. 
Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this glory, see what, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I write to you, I was, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong or of the injured party, but rather that God... Rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devout, devoted to us you are. By all this we are encouraged. In addition to our encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit had been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well and this affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient receiving him with fear and trembling I am glad I can have complete confidence in you thanks Carl Let's pray. Lord God, uh, we pray that as we think about these words that you have caused to be written down, that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive you uh, speaking these words to us. Oh, Lord, help us to believe you, to take you at your word. Uh, Lord, help us to receive them in humility. <coughs> and in repentance and faith. Lord, help us to trust uh, that uh, you speak these things for our good uh, and for the building up of our faith in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I think one of the greatest pains in life is the pain of unrequited love. That is the pain of love which is not matched or love which is not kind of reciprocated. People write poems about it, uh, people write books about it, they make films about it. I've been, all week I've been trying to think of poems and books and films about unrequited love and I cannot think of any good examples. Can anyone think of a book or film? The closest I can think of is maybe Man and Boy. Do you know that? Is that, is that right? There was a film and, uh, you know, Hugh Grant and uh, there was the unhelpful attachment from that lady. Anyway, but, uh, you know, it's bound to be a Hugh Grant film. But there are so many films... <laughs> I'm just take my word for it. There are so many films about that concept where there's a man who falls in love with some woman and she doesn't meet his affections. You know, or some woman who falls in love with a man, but it can never be because, uh, you know, of this reason or the other. But the pain of unrequited love is not just a pain of romantic love, I think. But unmet, unmatched love is a pain in any sphere of life. 
Anytime we spend ourselves in loving people and that love is merely taken and not reciprocated, anytime that happens, it's a source of great pain and great difficulty. And that really is the theme of Paul's section here of the letter to Corinthians. Paul is talking about his love for the church and how it is that they've responded to him. Paul begins by describing the depth of his love for the Corinthian church. Uh, There in chapter 6, verse 3, he says, We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonour, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. They've been beaten, imprisoned, they've gone hungry, they've gone without sleep. Uh, If you were here a few weeks ago, you might remember that we saw that ministry is costly, Whenever we serve people with the words of the gospel, whatever setting that might be in, it's costly to do that. It's a mistake for us to think that we minister out of abundance. There's a kind of a myth, I think, that ministry is reserved for those people who have an abundance of time or an abundance of gifts or an abundance of stamina or energy or success. Paul Uh, says that he and his companions ministered out of their poverty, not out of their abundance. They did ministry from places of hardship and distress, beatings, prison, dishonour, sorrow, poverty, destitution. And Paul says that this ministry in hardship was not just a mark of their diligence, they kind of stiff up a lip mentality. This ministry through hardship was a token of their love. So verse 11, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. They've done it out of love. Gospel ministry, serving people with the words of the gospel, is an act of love. First and foremost, it's an act of love for God. But Paul is saying here it's also an act of love for the people to whom we minister. And notice that the measure of Paul's love for the Corinthians is not passion, but endurance. Endurance through hardship, toil, trouble, abuse, beatings. So it's not When Paul turns up at the door of the Corinthian church and says, I love you, it's not flowers that he has in his hands as a kind of a testimony to his love, as a token of his love. When he turns up at the door of the church in Corinth, the token of his love 
is bruises and poverty and destitution. It's imprisonment. It's a shattered reputation. We ought not to confuse, I think, love with passion because it's a far greater act of love, I think, to do what Paul did, that is, to undergo great hardship to serve somebody. It's it's a greater act of love to do that than it is to love somebody when life is easy or when our hearts are full. It's always easy to love somebody when when our hearts are full, isn't it? But when it costs, that's when it's, that's the great act of love, isn't it? You know, like Jesus, to lay down his life when we were his enemies. To only serve people when it's easy and when we want to is not to love them. Actually, in the end, it's to love ourselves. And too, when we think of the people who love us the most, so easily we're inclined to think of the people who make the most of us, who enjoy us, maybe, and, uh, and, and say encouraging things about us. And that's great, that's, that's important too, I suppose. But we so often ignore the people who love us through hardship, the people who have endured the worst from us, and have remained faithful. It's those people who love us the most. And Paul says that's how he's loved the Corinthian church. He's loved them not with flowers and great words, but with great suffering and great tribulation. So Paul and Timothy had resolved to love the Corinthians, whatever it would cost, in good times and in distress. And now, kind of having highlighted the tokens of his love for them, Paul goes on to call on the Corinthians to reciprocate that love and to love them in return. So verse 12, Paul moves on. He says, we are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, he writes, open wide your hearts also. You can tell he's a little bit tentative here, isn't he? I'm speaking here as to my children. Open wide your hearts to us. Again in 7 verse 2, make room for us in your hearts. Here is Paul's pain, the unmatched, unrequited love. They'd love the Corinthians. Man, they'd love them. They'd gone to prison for them. They'd been beaten for them. And yet, it seems as though that church was holding back their love from Paul and Timothy. There's nothing, I think, which so quickly drains people's energy for ministry as unmatched, unreciprocated love. You might have experienced that. You might have poured yourself out. It might have been uh, in uh, the context of your home, trying to minister to your children, trying to share with them the gospel, trying to uh, teach them what it means to live a wise life. And you pour yourself out in that, and it's unmet, I think, with horror of some of the uh, ways that I 
failed to meet the love of people who've ministered to me in my life. I remember once hearing the story of a lady who would go every week to visit her grandmother. Her grandmother was suffering from dementia. And she would faithfully go every week to visit her grandmother. And every week her grandmother would sit there and would complain about her. She didn't know who she was. And her grandmother would complain about her and say, so-and-so, she's an awful granddaughter, she never comes to visit me. And week after week, this granddaughter would go back and visit and her love, in a sense, poured out but unmet and unmatched. Or sometimes ministry can feel like that, can't it? I've been uh, thinking about this all week uh, and I've been praying about this all week about whether or not I should say what I'm about to say. But I think that this passage demands it. Paul and Timothy literally say, we've opened wide our mouths to you. Open wide your hearts to us. They're talking about their preaching and their teaching ministry, first and foremost. We've spoken to you. We've gone to great lengths to preach and to teach to you. Open wide your hearts to us. Receive our love and love us in return. Well, let me make a personal note. I have wondered long and hard about whether to say this, but let me say that preparing sermons every week is an act of love. It takes up most of my time. It takes up great emotional energy. Uh, And the reason that I do it is not because it's the most enjoyable thing that I can think of to do with my time. But I do it, this is not easy for me to say, I do it because I love you. I could easily give up this job and go and be an engineer and earn lots of money, probably, or not very much. I was never a very good engineer, but... The reason that I labour in this ministry is because... Of love. I'm not claiming to be a paragon of virtue, I'm just saying that's why I do it. And there are lots of people who've received my ministry in the last three years in love. And I want to acknowledge that too and say thank you from the very bottom of my heart for that love that you have shown me in return. But I also want to say that it can be hard then when you spend a week preparing a sermon and labouring over it and praying over it. It can be hard to turn up to church and to realise that 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 people haven't bothered turning up. It's like cooking dinner for guests only for them to ring up at the last moment and go, I'm sorry, we've got a better offer. 
I'd like to go somewhere else. Can you imagine the outrage if I woke up on Sunday morning and I decided to stay in bed? Don't feel like going to church today. I think I'll just uh, read Lord of the Rings. Or if I organise to meet up with my friends at 10.30, it's kind of got halfway through the sermon and said, look, sorry guys, I'm going to have to run. Uh, I've made another appointment. It would be an outrage, wouldn't it? But it's not just my plight. It's the same for the music team, isn't it? It's the same for them. They put in lots of effort every week to serve us. It's the same for the service leaders who prepare to lead us every Sunday. It's the same even for people people who uh, do the welcoming or serve morning tea or... Uh, whatever it might be, who set up the chairs to do that labour and then for people not to receive that act of love actually is painful. Even just for people who turn up every week to do the ministry of the pew, that is the ministry of turning up and encouraging people with words, the words of the gospel, it's painful to turn up to love people and then for that love not to be received for that love to be disregarded. To turn up whenever you want and to expect others to be there to serve you isn't love. It has another name. It's called consumerism. Now, I know that people go away. I don't want to ignore that. I know that people get sick. But if you commit to being a part of a church, you commit to turning up on Sunday. And it's not out of legalism, but it's out of love. We come to love others and to receive the love of others. And to not turn up consistently is a slap in the face to people who are trying to love you. If you commit to a growth group, in the same way you commit to turning up as much as possible. When you don't turn up, it's this kind of a slap in the face to people who have turned up for the purpose of loving you and of receiving your love. Now, we might be wary of legalism, uh, but one wonders whether what we're really wary of is disciplined love. You see, it's not legalism to commit to a marriage and to say, I am going to stay faithful to you, I'm going to live under the same roof as you, I'm not going to go off and uh, have relationships with other people. That's not legalism. It's love. It's the commitment of love, isn't it? It's not legalism for a person to say, for a, a father or a mother to say, well, I'm going to commit to having dinner with the family every night. Now, it might not always work out like that, but it's an act of love, isn't it, to say, you matter so much to me that this is what we're going to commit to. There are lots of people in this church, there are loads of people in this church who keep opening wide their hearts to us. Please open your hearts to them and receive their love. Please receive their love and love them in return. So Paul and Timothy have given themselves in love to the Corinthians 
and yet the Corinthians seem to be withholding their love in in return. But why is that? Why is it that they were so struggling to love Paul and Timothy? Well, I think Paul gives two reasons which we're going to look at. The first reason uh, comes in the very next section, so in verses 14 to chapter 7, verse 1. Paul writes, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what does righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God, writes Paul, as God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. It seems that one of the obstacles to the Corinthians loving Paul and Timothy was that they were yoked together with unbelievers. So the image of uh, being yoked together comes from the Old Testament from a few places. One of them is Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10. And there it says, Do not plough with an ox and a donkey yoked together. And the idea is that, you know, you've got this big hulking ox, right? And it's yoked together with this piddly little donkey. And they're trying to plough together and it's just it's not going to work out, right? The donkey's going to get dragged along. The ox is going to get held back. Uh, it doesn't work. And Paul's kind of taking that imagery and saying it's a bit the same in terms of relationships, uh, particular kinds of relationships between Christians and non-Christians. What he means, what kinds of relationships he's talking about is not immediately obvious, but he uses words which kind of suggest a very close uh, knit kind of relationship. So he talks about being yoked, you know, it's the idea is it's, it's quite a close relationship where he talks about fellowship uh, or harmony or having things in common or about agreement. It's a very uh, intimate kind of relationship. So it doesn't seem that his warning is that we should avoid contact with people who aren't Christians. He explicitly says in his first letter to the Corinthians, that's not true because if we were to do that, we'd have to leave the world. We'd have to go and live off a little kind of communities uh, where people aren't able to come in. Now, he's not saying that. His warning seems to be against close partnerships between Christians and and non-Christians, partnerships in which your allegiance to God will be put at risk. Partnerships in which your allegiance to God will be overridden by your allegiance to that partnership. So the most obvious example, I think, uh, is the example of marriage. Marriage between a Christian and someone who's not a Christian. Kathy Keller, excuse me, Kathy Keller uh, wrote an article uh, on that subject, which I think is very helpful on the on the subject of Christians marrying non-Christians, and she outlines three possibilities in which that kind of relationship can go. Uh, So she says, there are only three ways an unequal marriage can turn out. One, in order to be more in sync with your spouse, 
the Christian will have to push Christ to the margins of his or her life. This may not involve actually repudiating the faith, but in matters such as devotional life, hospitality to believers, small group meetings, emergency hosting of people in need, missionary support, tithing, raising children in the faith, fellowship with other believers, those things will have to be minimised or avoided in order to preserve peace in the home. So the first possibility is that in order to be in sync with your spouse, Christ has to be pushed to the margins of life. Uh, Alternatively, she says, if a believer in the marriage holds on to a robust Christian life and practice, the non-believing partner will have to be marginalised. If he or she can't understand the point of Bible study or prayer or mission trips or hospitality, then he or she can't or won't participate alongside the believing spouse in those activities. The deep unity and oneness of a marriage cannot flourish when a partner cannot fully participate in the other person's most important commitments. So Christ might be minimised, the partner might be minimised. Or thirdly, she says, so either the marriage experiences stress and breakups or it experiences stress and stays together, achieving some kind of truce that involves one spouse or the other capitulating in some areas but which leaves both parties feeling lonely and unhappy. So do you see what she's saying? She's talking about what happens in intimate relationships between Christians and non-Christians. There's a divided allegiance which causes friction and stresses. Now, marriage is a unique case, I think, uh, in the Bible. Paul says elsewhere that when a Christian is already married to a non-Christian, they should remain married as as much as they're able, as long as the non-Christian partner is happy to do so. But what's true of marriage is true of other relationships as well. We can never elevate relationships that we have with non-Christians beyond a certain level because there will always be divided allegiances. There can never be friendships in an absolute sense because that friendship will at some points have to give way to our allegiance to Christ. So someone invites you around for a party and the party ends up turning into a booze fest. Which allegiance will win out? Will it be your allegiance to your friend or will it be your allegiance to Christ? Someone invites you around for dinner and the dinner turns out to be followed by a film downloaded from the internet, stolen, not legitimate. Which allegiance will win? Your allegiance to your friend or your allegiance to Christ? The same can be true in business as well. A business partnership with a non-Christian can mean abandoning Jesus in order to maintain the business. Pressure to dodge taxes, to cut corners. Which allegiance will win out? Will it be your allegiance to the business or your allegiance to Christ? The underlying principle that Paul is trying to get at is that we ought not to get into relationships where our allegiance to that relationship will trump our allegiance to Christ. And Paul's larger point is that not only are these relationships problematic in themselves, 
These relationships were keeping the Corinthians from deep relationships of love with Paul and Timothy. So not only can they trump our relationship with Christ, they can trump the working out of our relationship with other Christians. So Kathy Keller gave some examples of that. Our allegiance to our Christian small group can be trumped by our allegiance to our non-Christian friends. Our allegiance to our church gathering on Sunday is trumped by our allegiance to our unbelieving husband or wife. Our allegiance to church fellowship is trumped by our allegiance to our unbelieving family. I've given the story before, but a friend of mine played football. We both played for the same team in Geelong, and we played football. And football was always on Saturday. It was always Saturday, except for the semi-final, except for the finals. The finals were on Sunday morning when church was on. And he decided in the end, having played the entire season and got to the team having got into the quarters and the semi-finals, he decided that he would go to church instead of going to his football team because his his conclusion was, my love for the church trumps my love for the football team. Which allegiance will win? It's not that one is wrong and the other is right. It's where is my allegiance? Where is my love? Paul had loved the Corinthians deeply, but they were kept from loving him in return because of their partnerships with unbelievers. That was the first obstacle. The second obstacle uh, to the Corinthians opening their hearts to Paul and to Timothy comes in the next section, beginning in in chapter 7, verse 2, and it's Paul's past rebuke of the Corinthians. He begins chapter 7 by saying, Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. And in what follows in the rest of chapter 7, he goes on to rehearse again that history of their relationship. So verse 8, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Paul's history with the Corinthians was a long and a painful one. On several occasions he needed to rebuke them. He'd written once because there was sexual, sexual immorality in the church. He needed to confront that. He needed to confront idolatry in the church and he had to write this severe letter which was pretty hard line and pretty confrontational. But Paul's rebuke, though painful, had led the Corinthians to repentance. They'd received his rebuke and they said, yes, that's right, we do need to turn away from this sin. They didn't just regret the past but they turned away and it led to true repentance, to godly sorrow. Verse 11, Paul says, See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. They turned from their sin 
and had embraced better things. What Paul seems to be doing in this last section of chapter 7 is patch up the relationship. He'd confronted them, it was awkward, it was uncomfortable. And the risk was that unaddressed the confrontation would lead to bitterness. And if not bitterness, at least to coldness. There's always a danger, I think, that the best rebuke offered in the best spirit for the right reasons can sour a relationship, let alone bad rebukes offered poorly for the wrong reasons. But even the best rebukes offered in the best way, even those, even when those, those rebukes lead to correction and to repentance, even those can lead to hostility and if not hostility a cooling off in the relationship but Paul says don't let the past determine the future don't let the past rebuke the past confrontation cool your love for us he says look at our ministry look what we've done among you look how we've served you Open wide your hearts to us. Receive our love and love us in return. Paul had loved the Corinthians and he called on them to get rid of whatever obstacles there were that stood in the way of matching his love. Of course, to minister to those who don't love us in return is the plight of the Christian. It was Jesus' plight, wasn't it, to love those who didn't reciprocate his love, to love those who were his enemies. He went to the cross. He loved us unto death. And Paul's taking that same model of ministry and applying that to his own life. He's saying, I have loved you. Open wide your hearts to love us in return. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the love of Christ who gave himself for us when we were his enemies. Lord, we thank you that he abandoned the glory of heaven and entered the frailty and the ignominy of human life, that he took on the curse of our sin, that we might be forgiven, restored, raised up, seated with you in the heavenly places. Lord, thank you for his amazing love for us. Help us to love him in return. Lord, thank you that Jesus, even now, ministers to us through each other. And Lord, we think of the great love and service that we have received from many people over many years.
Lord, we think of family and friends and colleagues. We think of those we've only met for five minutes here and there, but whose words, whose gospel words have struck us deeply when we needed them the most and who have enabled us by your grace to carry on through difficult circumstances. Lord, we thank you for the love of those people whose mouths have been opened wide to us. And Lord, having received so much, we ask that you would enable us to open wide our hearts to them, to love them for their faithful ministry to us. Lord, we think of those in our own church, those who work amongst us, not only in upfront roles, but Lord, those who work behind the scenes, those that we never think of, who serve us week in and week out, who love us deeply, perhaps, Lord, more than we have ever loved them. Lord, forgive us that we love ourselves so much and we find it so hard to love those who love us. Open our hearts, we pray, for the glory of your kingdom and for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.